I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe Podcast. Should that be your new header? It's worth a try. I think the other one is getting a little old. I th- yeah, I think you're. I've been thinking that. Like, I don't know if we're actually a debatably Jewish. But I think we're very clearly a Jewish podcast. The part for me that's interesting is that like there's an element of like debating in popular stereotypes of certain kinds of Jews, and I think that that is where the debatably part comes in. Oh, like not debatably, but debating. Maybe we should ask people. Yeah, let's let's open it up to the floor. So yeah, if anyone's listening who has an idea for a new tagline for their show, please email us, trafepodcast at gmail.com, or tweet at us at trafepodcast. Should we use a hashtag for this? I would probably want to give this a little bit of thought, but how about we just go with trafe tagline? Trafe tagline, sounds great. So either email us or hashtag trafe tagline. Great. David, where were you when you were 19? When I was 19? Yeah. I was in Thornhill, Ontario. Any strong memories? Uh, I was working at the comic book store. How, yeah. how come? The show's 19, want to know if you had any memories from being 19? Uh, it's, I mean, we're actually almost reaching a landmark for the show where we started work on the show last April and we released our first episode in July. So I think our next episode is actually going to be our one year anniversary of the show. In human years, but not in podcast episodes counting as years. <laughs> that is correct. Yes. Glad that that's been clarified. Speaking of landmarks, I understand that your bar mitzvah portion was several weeks ago. Wait, how do you know that? Um, a little something called the internet. Wow. Yeah. No, Jewish Twitter is uh, fruitful sometimes. Um, that is correct. My bar mitzvah parsha was Bamidbar. Um, Hashtag Jewish content. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't really know what to say about it. David, what was the parsha about? Oh, Bamidbar literally translates into in the desert, but they also take a census while they're in the desert. So huh. there's a lot of details about how many people and how many coins they're carrying and how many animals. And uh, it's just a lot of repetition. But so like a Haggadah situation. In the sense that it's a repetitive song. Yes, that is what I was getting at. Anyway, I, I am fairly certain this is interesting to about no one. Mm-hmm. So maybe let's tell people what's on the show. David, that was a professional seg over there. Thank you very much. So to talk a little bit about the anti-BDS executive order that was passed in New York. We got in touch with an activist with Adala in New York. His name is Hani Ghazi. And we spoke a little bit about the context that led to the anti-BDS executive order being passed and, and some of the repercussions that that's having for activists in New York State. And for the interview, we chatted with someone who you really wanted to talk to. Yeah. So in Canada, there's a magazine called Outlook. And it's pretty much the only leftist Jewish publication in Canada. This past week, they published their last issue. So I reached out to the editor, Carl Rosenberg, to talk a bit about the magazine's history and, and the legacy that they're hoping to leave. But with that being said, this is your episode of Trafe for the 23rd of Sivan 5776. Welcome to another edition of BDS Watch Watch. The segment where we watch the BDS Watchers. So on June 5th, Andrew Cuomo, who's the governor, governor. the governor of New York, uh, after seeing two unsuccessful attempts on passing similar legislation through the deliberative body that makes law in New York State, wrote an executive order that essentially criminalized BDS in New York State. The details are a little fuzzy, but it ranges from some kind of BDS blacklist to ensuring that state contracts don't go to people who pass pro-BDS mandates. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit unclear what the exact implications of this bill are, but the language is very over the top. 
and it's been getting a lot of attention. Now, for listeners of Trafe Podcast and for partisans of BDS Watch Watch, this comes as no surprise. The United States at the federal level and at the statewide level has been trying to pass legislation that to various degrees either bans or criminalizes BDS. And while there has been an ongoing campaign to pass legislation, this executive order is above and beyond any of the bills that have been passed so far. That was just something that Governor Cuomo passed on a whim. Wait, are you saying governor is a reference to Arnold Schwarzenegger, the governor of California? No, it's just an accent. Okay. And, and just to give people some idea of the context this is emerging from, Andrew Cuomo has been embroiled in a series of investigations surrounding corruption, and his political future is looking particularly uncertain. So many are viewing this executive order as an attempt to reach out to the Jewish community who he believes can be an ally through his forthcoming political turbulence. So to get some more context on all the shenanigans happening south of Montreal, all the way down the 87, we got in touch with Hani Ghazi, who's an organizer with Adal in New York. Thank you so much for talking with us. Hey, guys. And Hani, would you mind telling people a bit about who you are? My name is Hani Ghazi, and I am a Palestinian. Uh, I live in New York City, and I am active with Adala New York, the New York Campaign for the Boycott of Israel, and I am the overall event coordinator for the event series called Israeli Apartheid Week, and and that's it. So, hey, we, we called to get a bit of a feel for what's going on in terms of the mobilizing against Cuomo's recent BDS bill, but before we get into that, can you explain to listeners who might not be familiar uh, with the bill that was just passed in New York? Yes. So, uh, this is actually an executive order that was signed by Governor Cuomo on June 5th because the bill did not pass. So there were two bills already in New York State. Uh, There was Assembly Bill A9036, which would impose boycott ban on any U.S. ally as defined in the bill to create a blacklist of individuals and institutions and organizations advocating for boycott and make it illegal for the state to do business with them. And then there's another assembly bill, AD-22, which is pretty much a copy, except that it's strictly limited to Israel. Uh, There's also uh, the New York Senate bill, S-6086, which is a bill that relates to all purchasing restrictions on persons boycotting Israel, depriving them from investment and certain public funds if they are boycotting Israel. So... This is a legislation that is to amend the state finance law such that it would outlaw the right to boycott, and it would also blacklist BDS supporters and deny them any government contracts. And those two bills, they passed the Assembly, but they were not moved to the floor for a vote or signed by the governor uh, into law. And this is what happened on June 5th. Uh, The governor took a shortcut to outlaw the right to boycott by signing the executive order 157. And the timing of that was very interesting. It was the morning of the Israeli day parade in New York City. And so this executive order that Cuomo signed, um, did that incorporate the three previous iterations of this bill? Yes. And it still remains to be identified exactly how it is going to affect individuals and organizations and academic institutions, especially academic institutions that have already passed a resolution to endorse BDS through their student government in order 
for the for those academic institutions to uh, divest from Israeli occupation. I was more familiar with the legislation in the two bills because there were a few representatives from Adela, New York, joining the coalition that was trying to fight back these assembly bills and the Senate bill. And to me, it seems like Governor Cuomo and his timing of this executive order to have it signed at 5 a.m. and to tweet about it the morning of the Israeli Day Parade shows that he is doing a media stunt and a social media stunt. And this reminds us to an incident that happened exactly five years ago when so many of us activists were trying to legalize gay marriage in New York State, and it was still not legal yet. And so many of us were standing uh, and waiting, and we were in Washington Square Park on Saturday night. But then Governor Cuomo announced that it's finally legal, and then he marched in the gay parade as a hero. And here he is doing the same thing, was wearing a sash and marching in the parade and waving like a beauty queen. And I just think that this was a media stunt, and the timing of it uh, was just very, was not a coincidence. Uh, but at the same time, this still remains unconstitutional. Can you talk a little bit about the organizing that's happened uh, in response to the bills? I assume the infrastructure and the groups that are organizing against the bills are also opposing Cuomo's executive order? The immediate reaction was when three organizations joined forces in order to protest outside Governor Cuomo's offices in Midtown. This protest was on Thursday, June 9th, and it was organized by Adala New York, the New York Campaign for the Boycott of Israel, Jews Say No, and Jewish Voice for Peace. Where do you think that this is going? Like, do you think that this is going to be able to stay on the books? This is this is why our hashtag in our social media was hashtag WeBDSUntil. And uh, on our website, uh, AdelaNewYork.org, you will see a lot of the pictures from that protest, and you will see us holding so many signs that begin with WeBDSUntil. We are not going to stop mobilizing. We are not going to stop raising public awareness, and we are not going to stop targeting with our campaigns those companies that are profiting from unjust Israeli practices, we are going to continue. This is not the first and not the only difficulty and obstacle that is being put in our way. It's following a pattern that we have been seeing a lot. Anything can be indicative of the success of the movement and the success of the growth of this movement. Uh, This movement, when it first started off, it was dismissed and it was taken as an unrealistic movement. It was not taken seriously, but then it quickly became the target of so many Israeli cultural campaigns that were sponsored and advertised by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. But then many of those campaigns have backfired and many of them have failed. So many celebrities have withdrawn their name or have canceled concerts or have dropped whatever brand that they were marketing or putting their name to the but then you are seeing this level of push against BDS now. And it's only been 11 years since this movement started. The BDS movement has maintained its goals since the very beginning. But what we are seeing is this push against BDS at a governmental level. And this is, this is new, but this just shows that this movement has been growing and has been successful. Uh, on our website, we constantly have announcements. Um, about our uh, public actions. 
and on our Facebook page as well. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you, guys, and it was nice talking to you. You can't, you won't, and you don't stop. It's time for Shkayach. Shkoyach. 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 So you've made it to Shkoyach. Bienvenue. The halfway point of the show. Uh, Sam, what is your Shkoyach for today? So just avoiding all pleasantries, just going right into it. Well, we said we're not explaining it anymore. I don't know what else to say. That is a very tired joke, and I think we have to move on. Okay, so tell me your Shkoyach for today. So this is a Trafe exclusive. <laughs> what, what do you mean? Actually, it's not a Trafe exclusive, but it's the first time we're doing something on the podcast. Um, it is a listener-submitted Shkoyach. Or oh. should I say anti-Shkoyach? Oh, cool. Who sent it in? One Jonathan Katz, our New uh, York City media correspondent. Great. So what did, what did he send in? He linked me to a tablet article, which might actually be both peak tablet, peak internet, and so terrible that I kind of don't want to mention it for fear of driving traffic to the website, because that's actually what they're trying to get us to do. I feel like it can't possibly meet the standard that you're setting up here. Okay, David, we read a ton of articles in the Jewish press, and some are like politically horrible, and some are obnoxious, and there's there's good and bad for many different reasons. But this one is just terrible in a unique kind of way, and it's not 100% political, but obviously there are shitty political elements in it as well. All right, please, please do tell. So this article was published in the middle of June, when I don't know if this is intentional or not, but a bunch of news stories in Montreal kind of corresponded to it. The headline of the piece reads, The Jews of the Canine World... And the subheading or the subtitle is pit bulls have been unfairly stereotyped as genetically dangerous monsters. Sound familiar? Question mark. Of course, it's in tablet. I'm uh, again. <laughs> I actually don't even want to link to it in the show notes. Um, oh I, my god! I hope people don't Google it. It's perfect because I want to laugh at it almost more than I disagree with it politically. And the way that I disagree with it politically is itself part of the reason I want to laugh. So I think I think you're right. I think it's it's it might be peak tablet in this very particular way. I want to read the whole thing immediately, but maybe just tell me what the gist of it is. Ultimately, this writer is looking at how pit bulls are prejudiced in the U.S. and in New York City. Who are they racist against? Uh, they're prejudiced. People are prejudiced against them. Oh, okay. And because they are unfairly treated by dominant society because of certain stereotypes, this is a trait that they share with Jewish people. Oh, okay. And it's one of those like. You know what this reminds me of? Jews. That's basically the gist of the article. Can you walk me through the greatest hits of this article? So at one point, she says that uh, there are websites devoted to stereotypes of pit bulls, and there are also websites devoted to stereotypes of Jews. Coincidence? I think not, David. Uh, but okay, but is there... <laughs> There's also obviously a reference to Hitler. Wait, what does it have to do with dogs? The author is making a link between eugenics and dog breeding. I think that it's a point that could be made eloquently. 100%. For the particular political... I just don't know if the like 1,500-word tablet article is really the place to do it. But according to the author, Hitler was really interested in dog breeding. Oh, and he loved German Shepherds, which huh. is not particularly surprising. But that he banned Jews in World War II Germany from owning dogs because, again, unquoted or like without any footnote or substantiation in this article. But according to the author, Jews were deemed to not be able to treat pets very well. Well, that's so interesting because there is a cultural quirk of Ashkenazi Hasidic Jews that they don't like dogs and they don't own dogs. David, I'm very glad you brought this up because once I started reading about this fakakta theory 
of pit bulls and Jews on Tablet, I was like, what other brilliant insight does Tablet have to offer me about Judaism and pets? There, so there's more than one article. There's a 2014 Tablet article with the brilliant headline, Are Jews a Dog People or a Cat People? So have you discovered a subgenre of Tablet article? <laughs> yes, apparently. There are weird biblical references, and I don't necessarily want to go much further. Is it like Bible code stuff? Um, if you look at these three letters in the diagonal, it says cat. <laughs> no, no, no it, was, it was actual quotes from passages from the Bible. And nobody reads the Bible code anymore. No. I feel like your um, lack of trust of authority might lend you towards such conspiracy theories like Bible codes. No, but everyone had a copy of the Bible code where I grew up, like a hardcover, large copy, but yeah. not because anyone particularly believed it or read through it. But I feel like the premise that it stemmed from, which is that the Jewish people and Orthodox Judaism in particular has some sort of true insight into the way the world operates was very appealing. Mm. So it was definitely like a coffee table book where I grew up. All right. Well, um, I think we've exhausted the subject. However, however, if you are on the internet and find any other tablet animal related articles, please send them our way. Yeah. At Sam Bick on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Just at Sam <laughs> No, your Twitter handle. All right. So Mr. Zinman, what's your squash for this week? So unfortunately this week, I also have to issue an anti squash. Ah, the old double anti squash. Yeah. So my has that happened before? I think it probably did toward the beginning, but we weren't really making that distinction then. Mm. I think at the beginning it was kind of all anti-shkoyachs, but they're all just, it was it was peak irony. Yes. So my anti-shkoyach for this week goes to two people who are only referred to by the Jewish media reporting of a particular incident as two Israelis. Are they in Palestine or are they in North America? So the setting for the story, Sam, takes place in a Ukrainian village named Uman. So Ukraine is where it takes place. That is correct. That's where some of my people are from. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, you might be interested in this story then. Shout out to Odessa. Apparently, tens of thousands of Jewish people from around the world make this pilgrimage every year to Uman. Have you heard about this? I think so. I mean, I've heard of a pilgrimage to Ukraine. I don't know if it's this one, but okay. carry on. So there's this guy who I think you might be familiar with named Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. I definitely do know him. Yes, David, so for the listeners, could you maybe explain a little bit? So Rabbi Nachman of Breslov was the founder of the Breslov Hasidic movement. And a particular quirk of that sect is that before he died he would frequently invite all of his followers from around the world to come and spend the Jewish New Year with him in Uman. And so today, after his death, it's customary for a pilgrimage to happen from Jews all across the world. And Always or just during New Year's? It seems like it centers around Rosh Hashanah. Okay. Hashtag but, Jewish content. But there's also a presence there throughout the year at different times because of this as well. Yes. People have to upkeep the estate, et cetera, et cetera. And... This past month, there was an incident where what are described by the Jewish Telegraphic Agency as two drunk Israelis. Oh, no. Who, according, that never ends well. According to a local Jewish leader, said they thought it was a good idea to shoot from the window of their hotel room with a BB gun at passersby. Okay. So there's two Israelis in Uman in this town or this village where Breslev uh, lived and died. Yeah. And there's still a Jewish presence and there. There's still a presence who are hiding in a window and sh where did they get a bb gun well they're staying in a hotel because okay. clearly they're participating in some aspect of uh, okay. this pilgrimage and as a result of this all these people started gathering around the hotel and the far right svoboda party started bringing their people there and there was this big scene oh no where the local jewish people had to come and confront them and it started off this whole fight but, david this is confusing so the israelis were they shooting at anyone in particular they're just shooting at local ukrainians 
So you're saying these drunk Israelis opened their hotel window and were shooting at Christian Ukrainians? Well, it's unclear what the religion of the people they were shooting. Uh, realistically. Yeah, probably. And then neo-fascist right-wing Ukrainians came to confront them. Yeah, and so the Jewish community had to show up too. The Breslevians. Well, the Jews who live in that town. But anyway, I was looking into it, and it seems like these brawls are actually a bit more common. And the aggression of these two Israeli guys might actually have been contextualized by an ongoing conflict between local Christians and the Jews who make these pilgrimages. In 2013, uh, there were these accusations that locals had put shattered glass in the water so that when they went in to swim, they get really hurt. That's dicey. Anyway, that's my that's my anti So your anti goes to the Christian members of the Svoboda party in the Ukraine? Well, it, it was an evolution of thought. So first, I wanted to give my anti to the two Israelis who were shooting their BB gun and, and making life for the local Jewish community really difficult. But then when I read more about it, it was to the local Christian Ukrainians who were making life miserable for the local Jews as well. So I think my anti is going both to the visiting Israelis and to the local Christian Ukrainians. 50-50. Yeah. All right. So episode 19, two anti and uh, long live Raisin Chala. So this last week saw the publishing of the last issue of Outlook magazine, or formerly Canadian Jewish Outlook. The magazine had been publishing for over 50 years, consistently maintaining a leftist political outlook. Which made it somewhat unique in the Jewish media landscape. And by somewhat unique, I mean unique entirely. And to kind of mark the end of this magazine's run, we reached out to the current and final editor of the magazine, Carl Rosenberg. Uh, so, Carl, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, would you mind telling people a, a bit about who you are? Okay, glad to be here. Um, my name is Carl Rosenberg. Um, I'm a lifelong resident of Vancouver, and for many years I've been editor of Outlook, Canada's progressive Jewish magazine, which uh, sadly has just folded with its uh, last issue, its spring 2016 issue. A lot of my interests are bound up with this magazine, both my interest in progressive politics and also in you know, world politics, including Canadian, the Canadian scene and uh, Yiddish uh, language and literature. So for me, this magazine, as for many of the other people who have worked on it, you know, has been a uh, labor of love. Can you talk a little bit about how the magazine got started? It got started actually well, long before my time. I mean, I was born in 1964, and the magazine started in October 1963. Or rather, that, that's when it started in its English version. It started originally as the English-language supplement to a Yiddish, a left-wing Yiddish newspaper called the Bochumblatt. But then in um, October 1963, it, it began publishing as an independent, self-contained uh, English or Anglo-Jewish magazine, as it was called then. And for many years, it was published in Toronto. But then in 1980, I think it was, it um, moved to Vancouver, you know, which is where I discovered it. And uh, for people listening, me, me and Sam are, are both in our late 20s. A lot of our listenership actually veers toward our generation. And can you talk a bit about the landscape of Jewish media that surrounded what was then Canadian Jewish outlook? Well, at the time, the media landscape, it, it came out of Jews of that generation, which is really my parents' generation, 
who were active in the Jewish left and the Jewish labor movement. And a lot of it revolved around Yiddish-speaking magazines, around the Yiddish press, and also there was an organization called the United Jewish People's Order, which was a political cultural order, which was founded in, I think the year was 1945. And uh, many of the people who were active in Outlook, that is before my generation, you know, were also active in Yujpo, uh, as it's called. But over the years, Outlook also attracted people of other uh, backgrounds and interests. It attracted many uh, Jewish writers and contributors on the left, who were involved not just, not just in Yiddish language and culture, but also other concerns. Feminists, environmentalists, people involved in the, in the Canadian left, people who were involved in Palestinian solidarity, anti-occupation activities. So over, over the years, the people involved in it gradually diversified in terms of both the backgrounds they came from and the, the, cons- and the, the concerns they shared. I mean, the Jewish media landscape in Canada today is incredibly right-wing, and I'm just wondering how Outlook as a magazine sort of saw itself fit in or or what the relationship was between the magazine and the rest of both the Jewish media world, but also the Jewish institutional world. Outlook has always seen itself, and I think been seen by readers, as an alternative to the Jewish uh, mainstream, and, you know, both to the, the Canadian Jewish establishment and also to the mainstream Canadian Jewish media. So I, th- I, th- I think people both read and involved in Outlook have done so because they want something different. I think more and more Jewish Canadians have become critical of the views of the Canadian Jewish mainstream on many issues, including uncritical support for Israel, you know, the alignment of many of the mainstream Canadian Jewish institutions with the, the former uh, conservative government. So I think there are some cultural outlets that have become not left-wing, but become sort of porous I think in some cases they've been letting in some voices, which they, they might not have done in earlier periods. For example, um, Sheldon Kirshner, who was a former writer for many years for the um, Canadian Jewish News, although he no longer is, he wrote what I thought was a fairly respectful um, article on Outlook um, on the occasion of its demise. And Sheldon, he's not someone I describe as left-wing, but I find it interesting that you know, a former long-time writer for the Canadian Jewish News wrote such a, a fairly respectful piece about Outlook. So have there been instances in your editorship where you've kind of butted heads with the Canadian Jewish News? I wouldn't say butted heads. I mean, partly because we're a magazine. We're, we're not really an activist organization. You know, we're not an organizing tool. But there are some occasions, though, where... Well, actually, there are some occasions where we have butted heads. For example, many years ago, I think it was in 2006 or 2007, I don't recall the exact issue date, where we published a long critique of the leadership of Frank Diamond, the CEO, or perhaps former CEO of um, B'nai B'rith Canada. The article was... I don't recall the exact title, but the article was called something like, you know, Partners, Partners for Imperium. It was something that was very, it was very strongly critical of both the leadership of B'nai B'rith Canada and also of, of Frank Diamond's alignment with the Conservative government and also his alignment with the Christian right in Canada. It was a fairly extensive and detailed article. And what was interesting was that uh, Frank Diamond sent a letter to the editor to Outlook, which we published. It was a very brief letter in which he didn't take issue with any of the factual statements. So I, I, I found that particular episode. It was an interesting one. Focusing more on on your role in the magazine, now that the last uh, issue has come out, I was wondering if you've been thinking about kind of what you've learned over however many years you have been contributing and kind of generally some some thoughts on the magazine ending and and your involvement in it. That's quite a big question. In terms of my involvement on it, on a personal note, I'd like to say I'm just glad to have worked with so many 
fascinating and worthwhile people, you know, who've, been, who've contributed so much to it. I mean, both the readers and contributors and the other editors whom I've worked with. I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad they've appreciated the outlook, but I've also um, uh, learned a lot from them. And also, I hope that our work continues in, in some form, in spite of the demise of Outlook itself as a magazine. I mean, would it be correct in your estimation to say that Outlook is the only progressive Canadian Jewish publication? Yes, I, w- I would say so. Well, Outlook is the only progressive Canadian Jewish publication which exists as an independent, self-contained publication. And this is the case now, but has it always been the case? Like, were there other publications in the last 20 or 30 years? As far as English language publications are concerned, Outlook is the only one in English that I know of. I mean, there are its precursors in Yiddish, such as the Volkenblatt, which Outlook originally came out of. But as far as publications in English, Outlook is the only one of its kind that I know of in Canada. I mean, Outlook's circulation was pretty impressive, considering how it was often described as fairly fringe by outlets like the Canadian Jewish News. And, and so I'm just wondering where you see that constituency going forward. Uh, do you think that there is what you would describe as a leftist or progressive uh, Jewish community in Canada that is continuing to have the conversations that were inside the pages of Outlook? Well, I think, at least I hope, that there is a progressive Canadian Jewish constituency that is continuing, as you say, to have these conversations. But it may take place in different forms. For example, the readership of Outlook, and especially of the generation that was part of it at its height, was very much attached to um, print media, whereas now many people are, are now turning more to online publications. So there is, at least I hope, there is not not yet, not exactly the same constituency, but a, but a similar one. The actual conversation it may, it may simply take different forms. Um, before we wrap up, uh, just because the paper was around for so long, and I mean, we've we've been doing this for about a year now, and the interactions that we've had with the institutional Jewish community are pretty wacky. And I'm just wondering, I can imagine. yeah, I'm wondering how many stories you accumulated over the tenure of your time at the magazine. We, we've had similar stories, such as the ones I described with Bene Blith, Canada. We've had other stories where I think one in the early part of the century, I think in 2000 and five, two thousand and six. We published a critique of the Canadian and Jewish Congress, or not so much the CJC, but the institution into which it became transformed, CJA, the Center for Israel and Jewish Advocacy. So we have published critiques which they take issue with. But um, I don't know that many truly wacky stories. I, there was there was one occasion where I, I, I received what amounted to it was really like a threatening email from I think it may have been for some Christian Zionist organization threatening to take out the court under Canadian hate laws if we didn't publish an immediate retraction to something we had written. But we, we ignored it, and then we never heard from them again. So it, it wasn't a serious legal threat. It was just a, an attempt at intimidation, a kind of low-level harassment. But there haven't really been that many stories of that kind. I think most of the interactions have been on a somewhat more uh, sober level. So I know it's been a couple of years since that CJC CJA article came out, but as someone who was involved in either editing or writing that piece, did you at that point understand the magnitude of what CJA would become and kind of foresee the shift that was happening? I think so. I think yeah, we understood. You know, I think we understood what was happening that, that it signified a, a, a transformation to the right of um, of mainstream, you know, Canadian Jewish institutions. For people who maybe are too young to know what the CJC is, could you talk about it a little bit? Well, the Canadian Jewish Congress, it's, it's always been seen as the umbrella organization, sort of like a parliament of the Canadian Jewish community. 
So it's always been, I would say, by left-wing curve, sort of mainstream. Within the overall orientation, I think there have been different tendencies in it. You know, some tendencies that are more right-wing, others that are more uh, liberal. You know, for example, there was a time when the United Jewish People's Order was expelled. I think this was back in the 50s from the CJC because of some of its critique of the you know, Cold War policies in Canada, its opposition to German rearmament, and it was not admitted until many years later. After, um, after it was formally readmitted to the Canadian Jewish Congress, there was one occasion when they tried to put forth some kind of resolution within the CJC on Israel, critical of the occupation. And it, it was rejected on some kind of procedural ground. You know, so useful, so useful was readmitted. But it wasn't or even able to bring forward a resolution that was critical of Israeli policy. So within the Canadian Jewish community, there's often been sort of, you could say a discussion, but also sort of a, a struggle over what opinions will be expressed, what voices will be reflected. So I, th- I think this is indicative of discussion within the Canadian Jewish community. It's often gone sort of, you know, backwards and forwards. It's advanced, but there's often been a struggle to pursue it. Uh, on that note, you know, now that Outlook has published its final issue, what are your feelings on the continuation of that struggle? I mean, for me and for many other people, the demise of Outlook, it's very sad. It means, I think, to many people, the loss of not just a voice, but a focus for the gathering of voices, you know, a, a focus for a discussion where different voices could be heard. All, all I can do is hope that it will somehow be continued elsewhere. For example, some people have expressed a hope that Outlook will revive in an online form which would be good to see. I mean, whether anything will come of this, I don't know. But I think there are all sorts of, there are different ways that the conversation, you know, could continue. For people who are interested in reading Outlook or reading more about Outlook, is there any way to access old copies in libraries or online? Or what would be the best well, way for people to dig through well, some of the archives? Well, one, one, one immediate way would be on our website, outlookmagazine.ca, I think will be a good place to start. Our final issue was posted in its entirety on the website. But, but our website also has um, selections from earlier issues. Going back several years, people can get quite, quite an extensive sampling of what Outlook has published over the years. Well, Carl, I'm sorry to see the publication go, but thanks so much for talking with us a bit about the history of it. Well, thanks so much, and I very much appreciate this opportunity. One thing I forgot to say was that when you mention different ways in which the kind of conversation that exists in Outlook could be continued, another way could be over your radio show, which sounds like a great one. Oh, thanks so much. So I, I wish you and your colleagues and, and your listeners all the best. Oh, thanks. That means a lot. Yeah. Greatly appreciated. Well, thanks so much. So that was the interview with Carl Rosenberg. Uh, you made it to the recommendation segment. Our recommendation for today is shamelessly self-promotional. Uh, David, a slight interjection here. Things aren't shameless if there are general senses of shame. Are you saying that you feel ashamed? I'm not saying that we shouldn't feel ashamed for promoting an article that we wrote two weeks ago on our own website. I mean, I don't feel ashamed doing this. Do you feel ashamed right now? I don't not feel ashamed. Okay, so my apologies. It's uh, a piece of shameful self-promotion. Perfect. Um, We want to plug this article that we wrote just over a week ago now. Um, It's about anti-Semitism in Canada the way that different organizations are measuring anti-Semitism in Canada and also how the Jewish community has and continues to understand anti-Semitism in Canada. And we don't go into such great length, but it is a critique of the framework of anti-Semitism and how how it doesn't adequately reflect what is going on. 
Uh, so if we piqued your interest in even the slightest, uh, in the show notes for this episode, you'll find a link to the article that we published on juschool.com. You can also go to our website, travepodcast.tumblr.com, and, and see the posting of the article there. As we heard from Carl talking about Outlook, these types of conversations no longer have institutional platforms behind them. And the way that we're currently reaching people is mostly through social media. Dave, the other half recommendation, which has nothing to do with self-promotion, but does have something to do with last episode's recommendation, is the fact that the Doikite zine submission deadline was bumped to July 1 which means that if you are listening to this on the first day that we release it on soundcloud.com, you have about two to four days to submit at doikitezine.com. Definitely not. But uh, if you do have a submission, you can send it to jenna.brager at gmail.com. And if this is the first that you're hearing of the doikite zine... Google, come on. Just type into Google, doikite, D-O-I-K-E-I-T. David, the only last thing to mention here is that folks should use the trafe tagline hashtag and or send us an email with header ideas. Yeah, any new way of describing the show. Currently, it's a debatably Jewish podcast, but we would really like a new one. See you in a few weeks. Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record under the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyagahagan territory. A warm and genuine thank you to our director of social media, Kara Page, to the minister of design, Claire Hertig, to So Called and Sack Syndrome for the music that you heard on this episode. Please follow us on all of the social medias at Trafe, T-R-E-Y-F. And please... Send comments and suggestions to trafepodcast at gmail.com. A second one died. That's not true, David. Let's check. That's, well, where did you, I, I definitely, that would have been on my internet. Didn't the dot one die? No, Maybe just it was one. Fools? It's just him. He's the him. only one that's dead? Yeah, Ad Rock. Just type in the Beastie Boys. They're not dead. What like, Google Beastie Boys. Second Beastie Boy dead. No. Oh, uh, but that that's not... He's not uh, a Beastie okay. Boy. He was a Beastie Boy. Yeah, but like... Okay. It's like if you were there for the first record and then 30 records have happened since.